Live from Gloucester, this is The Saturday Breakfast Show with Darren Lester and you are listening live. Hey, very good morning to you on this Saturday, the 11th of February 2023. I am talking behaviourism today. We are looking at the pros and the cons, we're seeing why it goes in and out of fashion and we're thinking about whether it has a place in today's education system. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest release? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. I was not with you for breakfast last week because I was expanding my own professional development. Um, I was at the University of Reading, where I did my first um, my first educational doctorate weekend, which was a fantastic experience. It was a drama. I'm about to tell you a story, um, but the actual experience of being there, of, of meeting my cohort, of getting the doctorate underway was was a really positive one. So last week ended up being quite a stressful week. I'm not going to lie, the imposter syndrome that our lecturers talked about on Saturday um, had kicked in by Monday of last week, before I even went. I was already sitting there thinking, uh, am I cut out for a doctorate? Is this really right for me? Um, am I clever enough to do this? Honestly, was the, the thought process that I was going through. Uh, and that kind of didn't let up. But that was fine. That was right. We all encounter imposter syndrome at some point during our lives, and um, you just live with it. You just kind of get on with it, and you go, do you know what? Maybe this isn't the right choice for me. Maybe the imposter syndrome is right, um, but I'm going to try it anyway, because maybe the imposter syndrome is wrong, and maybe this is the right choice for me. So we push through. I had planned to get the train to Reading on uh, Friday evening and of course I hadn't clocked that Friday was um, rail strikes here in the UK and I actually didn't clock that until break time on Friday so I was all ready to go. Um, I kind of turned up to school with the plan in my head I was going to go home at um, at lunchtime grab my suitcase go back up to school catch the train because train station you can look out of my classroom window um, and pretty much see the train station so I was all set uh, until I realized that there were train strikes. Um, so that kind of stressed me a little bit because I I do get very worried. I don't know if this is a common thing. I don't know, listeners, whether you suffer the same thing, but I do feel very worried when I go to a place. It's bizarre because I like to travel. I like to explore. I like to, to find new places. Um, but I do always get a little bit tense beforehand, uh, particularly if I'm going there for a reason. I think if I'm just going on holiday, or I'm just going with the purpose of exploring, then it's fine. 
because you know you can get lost and everything is okay but if i'm going somewhere with a purpose if i'm going somewhere in order to do something um then i want to be able to go and do it so my plan had been to go up on friday after school um spend friday evening going uh route from the hotel to the university so that saturday morning i would just be able to get there and everything would be fine so of course the the rail strikes put an end to that plan um for the record i i can't drive i never learned to drive so i am reliant on public transport i was reliant on the railway to to get me there and i'm just gonna say i tweeted this last week um please do follow me on twitter if you don't already that's at mr d lester or one word m-r-d-l-e-s-t-e-r uh twitter is one way that you can also interact with the show this morning um, please do. If you've got any thoughts on anything that I'm talking about, please do feel free to tweet them to me and I will read out your tweets on the show. Alternatively, you can text in to the show via the Podbean app. So please do engage. I'm always interested in um, in getting to know my listeners. Anyway, I tweeted out that actually this is the point of a strike to cause massive disruption and massive inconvenience because we had, of course, had um, teachers on strike as well. Uh, right across um, England and Wales and there was a lot of conversation about that about how um, some heads were choosing to use the wording our school is staying open so that we don't um, jeopardize your children's education you know there was a lot of emotional blackmail being used towards the teachers who were on strike Um, and being massively inconvenienced by the rail strike really hit home to me um of of the point of going on strike and you know i did tweet this on strike day i personally am not a striker i don't um i don't believe it it doesn't gel with my own uh sense of moral purpose but i recognize the right to strike and i recognize the choices that other people or the teachers make to strike and i support that if that's what you feel you need to do then that is absolutely what you should do but we do, if further strikes happen in the education sector, um, if that is the choice that's being made, it does need to be impactful, it needs to be purposeful, it needs to be meaningful. Uh, because if a strike does not cause an inconvenience uh, like it caused to me, then actually what is the point? Really, what's the point? So I spent Friday at home um, desperately rebooking train tickets Um, I did make another mistake there that I will come to. Um, And I left very, very early on on Saturday morning. Luckily, um, from Gloucester to Reading, it's a little over an hour by train. So I could get the 6.15 train. Um, I got into Reading, into the hotel by um, 8 o'clock. So I was able to shower really quickly, get myself freshened up and then walk to the university. That was all really straightforward. And the people at the hotel were amazing because I had booked um, Friday night and Saturday night. I phoned them when I realized I wouldn't be able to get there Friday. I said, look, I'm really sorry. Is it okay for me to just come and check in on Saturday morning instead? And the the manager at the hotel was great. She said, yeah, absolutely fine. Um, And she did. It was really, really straightforward. So that was good. So I set off, I left myself plenty of time to get to the university, it was absolutely fine, until I realised I'd arrived at the wrong campus. 
which was my own stupid fault. The, the university itself had been very, very clear about where we had to go. It had given um, uh, postcodes for sat-navs and all that sort of thing. I just hadn't read the instructions properly. Um, which led to my second bout of imposter syndrome, because I was thinking, actually, if I can't even read instructions to get to the campus properly, am I going to be able to read instructions to get a doctorate properly? Um, so that was uh, that was a whole thing. Eventually, uh, when I realised I was at the wrong campus, I, I rejigged Google Maps um, and started walking in completely the wrong direction. I've got no idea how I did that. Um, I think it is my own lack of orienteering skills, quite honestly. Um, but yeah, I went in completely the opposite direction to the one I was supposed to be going in and took myself on a nice little guided tour of Reading for about an hour. Eventually, eventually I found the campus. I found where I was supposed to be, which ironically was only about 15 minutes from the train station. Um, which was why I knew it was okay to get there by train in the first place. So I was late. Luckily, luckily the university had scheduled the first hour um, to be picking up the campus card, uh, which acts as our ID and our library card. And so because that was kind of low-key, you just turned up and grabbed your card, the fact that I arrived at uh, 10 to 10 when the whole day started at nine was not the end of the world. Um, and I will be forever grateful to the university for planning it that way. Um, but the, the, the weekend was really good. It was very informative. It's given me a lot to think about already. Um, I'll be honest, I wasn't sure whether I would get on with the program when the, um, when the learning portions came through because a big focus of the two years that we're on campus learning is on educational leadership. And I personally know that that is not my career path. At least I thought that wasn't my career path. We'll put it that way. Um, and so I was just like, okay, that, that's fine. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to the lectures. It might give me a bit of an insight onto the people who lead me. And, and we'll just see how it goes. But it turned out out of that and I think this is what I'm going to really enjoy about the whole process uh, and this is why I'm glad that I picked the EdD over the PhD. The, the difference in case you don't know is that the PhD has no talk component uh, so when you do a PhD it's pretty much just you working on your thesis whereas with the EdD we are having these um, weekends I have six over the the next two years where we're in a classroom with lecturers with other people um, expanding our knowledge, broadening our understanding of things. And, and one of my lecturers put up um, some, some definitions of the differences between leadership and management. And what really struck me, uh, what was really stark, was the idea that management is about maintaining the status quo, which is the thing that I'm not particularly interested in, where leadership is about prompting change, which I am interested in. Um, you know, I think there is a lot that we can still do in education to make the British education system better. And I don't like the fact that we seem to be burying our heads in the sands and ignoring the things that we can do to make it better. I very much do not like the fact that 
um, that COVID-19 gave us the perfect opportunity to redesign our education system, to make it more streamlined, to make it more relevant to the world that we're living in. And we ignored that just so that we could get back to normal in inverted commas as quickly as possible. And so I, I always thought that educational leadership didn't interest me because I'm not interested in maintaining the status quo, which is what I saw leadership as. That was what I believed leadership to be. But having now rethought my definition uh, and thinking, you know, actually management and leadership are not the same. And yes, management is not the pathway that I want to be on, but leadership actually is something that interests me. Um, that is something for me to think about. Of course, the downside to to that realization is the co-realization that there are no leadership positions in schools. Um, I understand that that's going to be a, a controversial opinion because there are called senior leadership teams in schools. Uh, people like to consider themselves leaders, but actually it's the management that get the job title. It's the management that get the TLR uh, allowance. It's the management that get the, in inverted commas, career progression. Leadership though, it seems to me, is always going to be unpaid. It's always going to be goodwill. It's always going to be the teachers who are wanting to improve their practice, to continually improve their practice and help their colleagues to do that. And I think while, <clears throat> excuse me, while there is still that kind of monopoly on hierarchy in schools, where Management positions are the ones that are more well respected, whereas leadership positions are the ones that um, that stay in the classroom and just drive drive change from the chalk face. Uh, I think that that means that fewer people will pursue actual active leadership. I think that fewer people will want to make active change uh, because teachers already do a lot of work unpaid, and so why would you want to take on more? Um, in order to be a leader, when you could, if you are ambitious, be a manager, protect the status quo, and rise through the ranks. So that's that's kind of what I'm thinking at the moment, and I think um, I don't think that will change. Honestly, I don't. <clears throat> while I think that there is potential in schools to have both a management team and a leadership team be two separate entities. I don't think that will happen because that will require more funding that schools just don't have. Uh, and so I think for those of us who are interested in leadership, but not necessarily management, there's a, a lot of thought to be put in about how that can be compensated, how that can be rewarded so that we don't continue to buy into the 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 teacher rhetoric of, oh, the work is its own reward, oh, it's a vocation, oh, you do it for the kids, which is all very true. But that shouldn't be used as an excuse to uh, take advantage of the goodwill of people, the ambition of people who who may want to progress just in a way that doesn't fit the, the status quo. So that was really interesting. <clears throat> and that's been a really interesting thought process for me. Um, over the last week or so. I don't really know where I'm going with it right now. Um, in fact, right now I'm not going anywhere with it because that's got nothing to do with the assignments that I have to write. Um, but it is something to think about. 
Um, there are 11 of us in my cohort. A big good morning to anybody <clears throat> who is in that group. I should have actually um, said on the group chat that I was going to, to talk about last weekend today. Some of you could have come on and join me. Um, maybe we'll do that in the future. We'll do a bit of a roundtable where we can chat about our experiences. Um, so if anybody is listening, good morning to you. It was a very interesting weekend. What I liked about it is that while we are all educationalists, not everybody in the cohort is a teacher. And that reminded me actually of something that I've always believed, which is that education is not just about school. As teachers, of course, we quite often want to protect the idea that education is in school because that keeps us in a job. But education happens everywhere. Yes, it happens in school, but it also happens among the outside of school departments that exist. It happens among the people who write our exams for us. It happens at home. And I think this is something that is quite often forgotten when we keep seeing, oh, why didn't I learn how to um, apply for a mortgage in school? Why didn't I learn about taxes in school? We forget that learning is not just about being in school. The point of being in school is so that you can learn from, in inverted commas, experts. You can learn from people who have gone through the degrees in the subjects that they're teaching, who have the lived experience of the subjects that they're teaching, and you can learn from their experience. But that's not the only thing that should be being learnt. And I think that's something we need to quite often actively remind our young people, that they should be looking to um, the people at home, they should be looking to their friends, they should be looking to other adults to learn things from because you don't only have to learn in school. And in fact, if you are only learning in school, then you are very much um, restricting your education. You're very much restricting the, the potential that you have to learn, the potential that you have to broaden your own horizons. So that was really interesting. And I am looking forward. We, we have our next weekend in, I think it's May. Um, and I will be interested to see how everybody from the teachers to the the, the people in, in educational departments have uh, spent the few months uh, and what, what changes have been made. So that was really good. Um, I then, I came home on Sunday, a uh, rail replacement bus and then a train. And, and that was all fine. It was a very straightforward journey. So I, I enjoyed that. Then on Monday, um, I tried to get a refund for my rail ticket because First Great Western say that they will refund if your ticket was unused due to industrial action, which mine was, so I applied for a refund, but it was rejected. Um, and the reason that it was rejected was that I had used the return portion of my ticket. So even though the outbound journey had not been used because I had used my return, they wouldn't refund it. Um, so again, that was my own stupid fault. What I should have done was bought a whole other ticket um, on the Saturday instead of just an outbound journey. And um, and then I could have tried to get a refund on that one. But again, that was the strike massively inconveniencing me and costing me now rather a lot of money, quite honestly, um, for the night in a hotel that I didn't use for the extra, extra train ticket. 
So again, that was my life being massively disrupted due to um, due to the strikes, which once again is what strikes are for. It's what they're about. So that's kind of the the whole point of them. So that was really good. That was really good. It was it was a very intense weekend. But I do think for anybody who is interested in looking at another qualification, um, a higher qualification, either to further your career or just out of interest, um, I do strongly recommend it if you can afford it or if your school or business will will sponsor you. Because I think not only is it a good way for you to um, for you to strengthen your existing knowledge and for you to gain new knowledge, just the idea. Uh, just the 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 principle behind getting different opinions from people who are in a very similar situation to you, hearing other viewpoints will really help you to think about um, um, facts, ideas, concepts that you believed were were fixed, that you believed you understood completely. In the same way that in the past seven days, my understanding of leadership has completely changed. So that's been really good. Um, since then, I have seen a lot of people on Twitter talking about how they are on half term. Um, I am very jealous because we still have a week to go. But I think while my brain was reading and processing the started half term, uh, my body was understanding, oh, it's half term. And so has allowed the February half term lurgy to set in. Um, as you can probably tell, I've got myself a bit of a sore throat. Um, I do have a bit of a headache today. Uh, and I still have a week of school to power through. So that's fun. That's fun. But this is something else that I was thinking about, um, kind of in terms of, of what people have been saying about teachers with the strikes going on. Because we do all seem to get ill over half term. Um, particularly this one. I've noticed February half term does seem to be the big one for people to get ill. And, and so for all people like to talk about, oh, teachers get the holidays. Actually, what we do is we save up our sick days um, and our body just forces us to be ill when we have got, again, in inverted commas, time off anyway. So that always, uh, that always makes me chuckle. But what I'm hoping is that I will get over this before my half term. So I've got one more week. So this time next week, I will have started and... Um, and I will be good to enjoy my week off and to get some work done. That will be lovely. Um, the news is not yet prepared for us, which is absolutely fine. But what I am going to do, just to um, just to save my voice and so that I can go and grab a quick drink of water, is to pop on some lo-fi music for us to enjoy. So I will just be back in a moment. <laughs>
with thanks to Pixabay, which does allow for the commercial use of its um, of its music. Let's talk about behaviorism, which is why we are here today. Behaviorism, just again, so that we are clear right from the outset, behaviorism is not the same as behavior management. Behaviorism is a theory of learning. Um, it's a theory of knowledge acquisition. It's got nothing to do with what we generally consider when we talk about behavior. So it's not about kids chatting in your classroom. It's not about the difficulty of getting them to take their coats off when they walk into the room, um, despite the fact that they never wear a coat when they're outside. Uh, I always find that quite interesting. It is specifically a, a, learn, a teaching style that we are talking about today. It was defined, mm, no, I'm going to go back a bit further than that. Learning was defined by Borger and Seaborn in 1966 as, um, and I quote, any more or less permanent change in behavior, which is the result of experience. Any more or less permanent change in behavior, which is the result of experience. And it's kind of from there um, that behaviorism can be encapsulated. And for me, this is actually one of the flaws of behaviorism right from the beginning, because if you are defining learning as being about behaviors, then of course, controlling those behaviors is going to be the way that you improve learning, that you improve teaching. But it is an interesting thing to consider because I can see that. I really can see that as, as an MFL teacher. Uh, let's take, let's take what I was doing with my year eights in German. Um, last week, I was teaching them the present tense and I was teaching them how, you know, we take our infinitive, um, let's take the verb, uh, spielen to play. I was, we take off the en to give us our stem spiel, and then we add on our ends. Under a behaviorist paradigm, the addition of the endings should become a behavior, which the children just start to do. And by indulging in that behavior, by changing their behavior from just writing out an infinitive to conjugating the verb, they have learnt. That's kind of how I understand um, Borg and Seaborn's definition. And I can kind of see why that is. Because if we're defining behavior as the broad, um, this is what people do, then, then absolutely, conjugating verbs is a behavior. So if that's the point that we're starting at, I can understand why people have bought into behaviorism, why people have believed that behaviorism works. As a theory of teaching and learning, behaviorism has a focus on um, observable and measurable behavior. The emphasis in a behaviorist paradigm is that conditioning and reinforcement, that is essentially rewards and punishment, um, teaches a behavior, and it's actually the behavior that we want children to be doing. Behaviorism itself doesn't give a whole lot of um, attention to the idea of processing thought. It doesn't really think about the, the 
the brain's understanding of the material that we're teaching. It focuses purely on what the children are doing. The behaviorist theorists, you will recall from your degree days, uh, Pavlov, Watson, Thorndike, and Skinner, they are the big four, uh, and they are kind of who we will be exploring today. Um, Pavlov and Watson come under what is called the classical conditioning umbrella that we will talk about shortly. Uh, Thorndike was a connectionist, and connectionists essentially believed in these uh, three what he called primary laws. So the law of effect, the law of exercise, and the law of readiness. Again, we will um, we'll go into all of this a little bit more detail as the show goes on. Uh, and then Skinner, as as the big one in teaching and learning, he believed in what was called operant conditioning. So the idea that reinforcement, either positive or negative reinforcement, can shape behavior, and it's that behavior that is in fact the learning. So again, here, we are thinking purely in terms of learning is what the children are doing, not necessarily what they are thinking or the knowledge that they are acquiring. There is an extent to the, which this is coming back round again um, under different categories, under different labels. In MFL, for example, where we are revisiting chunking particularly, and there's the idea that children will repeatedly come back to the same vocabulary, repeatedly come back to the same grammar. We don't necessarily teach that explicitly anymore, but they just keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. They get it right because it's repeated. It's that spaced repetition that we are told is a good thing for learning. And that getting it right reinforces the behavior that they are, um, that they are indulging in. As a concept, um, behaviorism is kind of rooted in the 18th century um, as research gained a more scientific approach, as positivism became more prevalent. Um, in the late 18th century, the early 19th century, uh, Freud began to develop psychology as an emerging discipline. So there was a greater understanding or a greater interest in how the mind works, how people operate. Darwin, of course, proposed his theory of evolution. And so there became an increasing belief in the idea that people and animals are the same, and that things that are done to animals, ways in which animals are trained, perhaps, can also be done to people, people might be able to be trained in the same way. Uh, Durkheim theorized that education could, perhaps should, be used to reinforce social solidarity. So the idea that by going to school, by participating in education, children learn how to be part of society. They learn how, they, how their citizenship functions and so they can help to build a better country, continent, world, whatever it might be. And the very rapid increase in technology had huge impacts on everyday life. You know, if you think about that period from, let's say, 
1850 to now, the changes just in things that we take for granted in washing machines and vacuum cleaners, in transport, in educational technology, that has all happened so, so quickly. And it had people thinking more about what it means to be modern, what it means to move forward, what it means to be in a future where your environment and your life experiences can be controlled. Control is a big part of behaviorism. The idea that we can control the behaviors of a child, we can control the um, the impulses, the actions, we can control the fact that they should start a sentence with a capital letter by reinforcing that, and that just becomes a learned behavior. And if you again, if you think of it in that historical context, it makes sense because it did suddenly the world was about control. And the world was about being top of the food chain, I suppose, being the apex predator. Because again, if you move from a kind of Judeo-Christian understanding of humanity, as was kind of prevalent, uh, certainly in, um, in Western Europe before Darwin's theory of evolution, then you see humanity as the, the pinnacle of creation and having dominion over the natural world. Whereas if you look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, you actually come to the same conclusion. You can kind of justify saying that um, humanity are the apex predators, we are top of the food chain. But now we have control over that. And so we can, we, we shape the world, we change it. And if we can change the world, then surely it's easy for us to change ourselves. So that was kind of where behaviorism comes from in a nutshell. I've glossed over it, of course, because that would be multiple shows all of its own. Um, we're going to look at now the four theorists I mentioned earlier, Pavlov, Thorndike, Watson and Skinner. And we're going to go through just in chronological order because that's that's the easiest way to do it. So we start with Pavlov. Uh, Pavlov was actively working in the 1890s to the 1900s. Then we're going to move on and we're going to look at Thorndike, who he was active in the 1900s through to the 1930s. Uh, Watson overlapped with Thorndike a little bit. That was 1910s to the 1920s was his research. And then we are going to finish off with Skinner, who was active in the 30s to the 60s. Good morning, Tom. Very glad to have you here with us again today. Tom has texted in using the Podbean app. Please do uh, do do that if you are listening via Podbean. You can join in the conversation. Behaviorism, as I've already said, is a very controversial theory of teaching and learning. And so I would be fascinated to hear your thoughts. If you're not listening to me via Podbean and you are listening elsewhere, um, either in real time or you are listening back to the playback, then please do join in the conversation on Twitter. You can tweet me at Mr. D. Lester, and uh, I will be replying to those throughout the week. All right, Pavlov. We all know Pavlov. Uh, everybody knows Pavlov and his dog. Ivan Pavlov was a Russian psychologist who worked on what was called classical conditioning. Uh, that's also called stimulus substitution. So his, his most famous experiment 
involved um, a piece of meat, a dog, and a bell. He wasn't actually um, researching psychology, which I didn't know. I thought that he was a psychologist um, looking at canine psychology, quite honestly. Uh, but he wasn't. He was actually studying digestion. And the idea was that he was measuring the dog's saliva in order to figure out something about the dog's digestive system. Uh, but he stumbled on his classical conditioning. So it was a complete accident. It was a byproduct. Um, and, and that is something that I find really interesting. Because, again, we see that in the classroom. We've all said, oh, you know, the kids didn't achieve my learning objective, my learning outcome today. Um, but they learned this instead. You know, they've learned the one thing that I didn't actually want to teach them today. They've learned the one thing that I just said in passing instead of what I actually wanted them to pick up. And um, that seems to be exactly what Pavlov did. And so his most famous, uh, his most famous contribution was done completely by accident. So in case you don't know, I will just give you a quick rundown of Pavlov's experiment. He taught a dog that every time a bell rang, the dog would be fed a piece of meat. And this was repeated over and over again. So again, repetition um, leads to expectation. The bell rings, the dog expects to be given some meat. The bell rings, the dog expects to be given some meat. And again, this ties in, in educational terms, to the idea of repeating concepts. In MFL, and in classics, we keep coming back to the same tenses over and over again. We keep coming back to the same vocabulary over and over again. In the humanities and in English, we keep coming back to um, essay writing techniques over and over again. It's the repetition that is really important. Eventually, Pavlov realized that he could ring the bell, not give the dog any meat, but the dog would still salivate because that was what it was expecting. This is something that we actually see all the time in school. Um, and I end up teaching, usually my year eight, sometimes my year sevens, um, about Pavlov's dog, because of how they respond to the bell. Because it doesn't matter what's happening in my classroom, the moment either the bell rings, or the moment I say, this is your homework, they start to pack up. Um, and I tried this once just to see what would happen because I don't always like to um, I don't like to set homework always at the end of my lesson uh, because quite often they will not be listening and overlook it. So once I said, OK, please, can you take out your planners? This is your homework in the middle of my lesson. It was the halfway point. Um, they took out their planners. They wrote their homework down and then they started to put all of their stuff away. And I sort of said to them well, hold on, why are you packing away? And one of the kids said, but you've, you've just set our homework, so it's time to go. And I had to say, well, no, no, it's the middle of our lesson. So children do pick up on these repeated behaviours. They get into these patterns, I suppose, because their world is so controlled for them. And when they're younger, in order to make them feel safe, we keep those routines going. They don't ever kind of let them go. Um, HB History has texted in, good morning to you. Always homework at the start, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it is amazing how many times they will use, oh, I didn't hear you set the homework. 
um, as an excuse if you do it at the end. So yes, 100% at the start. And again, I suppose if you can override that conditioning uh, for them to start packing away, if they can get into the habit of it being at the start, then they are more likely to actually pay attention. Um, so back to Pavlov. Um, before the conditioning, um, so before Pavlov conducted his experiment, ringing the bell uh, caused absolutely no response from the dog whatsoever. That was called a neutral stimulus. So the idea was that the dog heard the bell, and because the dog had never encountered the bell before, nothing had happened. Placing the meat, which was the unconditioned stimulus, in front of the dog caused the dog to salivate. So both of those are unconditioned responses. They are natural responses. Uh, placing the food was a natural response. Pavlov did that. The dog salivating was a natural response. The dog did that. During what was called the conditioning phase, Pavlov rang his bell a few seconds before the meat was put down. That was the conditioning. So I suppose, again, in educational terms, in terms of our young people, teachers saying five minutes before the bell, now take out your planners, this is the homework. That's the conditioning. And then the bell going is the reinforcement conditioned response. So after the conditioning with the dog, the ringing of the bell caused the salivation because the dog had associated those two things. So the idea here is that the unconditioned stimulus, that is the sight or the taste of food, provokes an unconditioned response that was the salivation. What had been a neutral stimulus, the bell, then becomes associated with the food until it provokes the response. That sound then becomes what was called the conditioned stimulus and the response becomes the conditioned response. All of that to say, I suppose exactly as, as we found with the, the, the packing away and the homework, is that children do quite quickly become conditioned. Their behaviour is impacted by what's going on. And again, while I've already said that behaviourism is nothing to do with behaviour management, there are certain similarities here, because we know that if, for example, um, some people over in the back of the classroom are getting away with talking, other kids in the class will think that they can talk. It's that response. Um, Anglia Ruskin University uh, has given some interesting examples. Um, they state, and they've taken this from Bartlett and Burton 2012, um, a teacher instructing pupils to work quietly is an unconditioned stimulus and pupils working quietly is an unconditioned response. There's no training has happened there. Stimulus with an additional stimulus. So that's the teacher telling pupils to work quietly, but you put your finger to your lips, gives an unconditioned response. The pupils work quietly on tasks. Then we have the conditioned stimulus, you put your finger to your lips without saying anything, and a conditioned response, pupils work quietly on tasks. Now, to those of you who are in primary, that will be very familiar, because most primary schools, certainly that I've worked in, will have some kind of hand signal that requires the children to be quiet. I've seen all sorts, and, and I trained primary, 
So I had to do all sorts of hand signals through my training. But it was the idea that, you know, I'm going to raise my hand or I'm going to put my finger on my nose or whatever it might be. And you are all going to copy me. And that means that you're quiet. And that's a conditioned stimulus. It's something that is not natural for me to do. I don't walk around with my finger on my nose. Although I'm glad that uh, that this is and not video because I have my finger on my nose while I'm explaining this to you. Um, and it's then not natural behavior for the children to put their finger on their nose and be quiet. But I have conditioned that. I have trained that. I suppose the controversy, controversy here comes to whether you think that putting the finger on the nose is training in the same way that Pavlov trained his dog, or whether it's an expectation. Is it, you know, that um, me putting my finger on my nose requires you to be quiet, and so you are instinctively quiet, or do you know that my expectation is that you will be quiet so you are overriding your desire to talk in order to comply with what I would like? Or are they the same thing? Do we condition children to meet our expectations? I don't know. This is where it becomes very, um, very murky for me. The whole idea of conditioning our children um doing these doing these hand signals to to get what we want am i signaling or am i training if i'm training do i want to train under a behaviorist model yes because part of that training is in helping the children to become functional members of society i am training them for the societal cues although if I'm in a supermarket and people want me to be quiet, they're not going to put their finger on their nose. They're going to tell me to shut up. So I don't know. I really don't know. Then Watson comes in. So that was Pavlov and, and his dog. Watson comes in. Watson uh, was born in 1878. He passed in 1958. He was an American psychologist who is broadly believed to be the person to have coined the term behaviorism, or at least the first one to have used the term. Watson basically believed that mind was irrelevant to learning. You did not need to use your brain in order to learn. He believed that um, environment was the key to learning, that behavior was the key to learning, and he did a lot on um, child rearing as well. He, his most famous experiment was the Little Albert experiment, uh, highly controversial, highly unethical, in my opinion. Um, he essentially experimented on a toddler uh, in fact, Albert may have even been a baby, depending on where your definition of, of baby and toddler um, uh, differentiate. But he he trained Albert to associate fear with furry things. So Albert eventually became scared of rats and rabbits and fur hats and even Father Christmas, which I just think is really, really sad. I think it's really sad. Um, there's a lot has been written, a lot has been said about the Little Albert experiment. Um, 
But he wrote in 1913, uh, and I quote, psychology as the behaviorist views it, a purely objective experimental branch of natural science. Its theoretical goal is the prediction and control of behavior. Introspection forms no part of its methods, nor is the scientific value of its data dependent upon the readiness with which they lend themselves to interpretation in terms of consciousness. The behaviorist, in his efforts to get a unitary scheme of animal response, recognizes no dividing line between man and brute. The behavior of man, with all of its refinement and complexity, forms only a part of the behaviorist's total scheme of investigation. So once again, for me, this is where I find behaviorism uncomfortable, because it is this idea that the children in our classes are like animals that need to be trained in order to get the responses that we want. And I don't want that. As a linguist, I don't want my children to just be trained unthinkingly to take the ending off of their verb and to add the appropriate ending on. Would that make teaching easier? Yes. In terms of knowledge transfer, absolutely. But for me, that's not the desired outcome, because for me, there is more to learning than that. There's more to learning than just them knowing what I need them to know in order to pass their exam. I want them to think about how they're going to do this in real life. I want them to understand how interesting it is that we manipulate words, how interesting it is that the infinitive, the spielen, the jouer, to play, is the, the base form of the word, and then we have to change it in order to be um, fitting, in order to fit with other people, in order to fit with the time. I want them to have that interest. I want them to have that curiosity. I was teaching comparisons to year 10 yesterday in French, and uh, I happened to notice during the little break, it was a double period, so I gave them a break in the middle to go and get some water, uh, and they took advantage of that break to play some Pokemon Go. Um, I love Pokemon. I'm the generation where Pokemon was the big thing um, when I was younger. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm a Japanese speaker. So Pokemon has been a big part of my life for a very long time. And so during the break, I taught them comparisons using Pokemon. Uh, we did, you know, Gyarados is stronger than Squirtle. And we had some who would win in a fight conversations in French. Uh, and it was brilliant. And one of the things that they took away, again, though this isn't what my lesson was about, but you've learned it, was the different names for the Pokemon in French. And we took them apart and we explored what they meant. And and I think they, they liked that more than they liked the comparatives. But I wanted them to have that spark, them to have that curiosity. I wanted them to have that interest to know, like I did when I was little, that there are people in France playing the same game, having that same emotional enjoyment of Pokemon, and they are calling the Pokemon different things, and the punning that, uh, that exists on Pokemon names in English also happens in French. Um, and, and one of the lads said, oh, that was really interesting, that was really cool. So I was really pleased with that, because it got them enthused, it got them interested. And I think behaviorism eliminates any need for interest. It eliminates the need for enthusiasm because it just is about training. 
it's uh, it's about everything becoming second nature and taking away the thinking in uh, in 1930 watson wrote give me a dozen healthy infants well informed and my own specified world to bring them up in and i'll guarantee to take any one at random and train him to become any type of specialist i might select doctor lawyer artist merchant chief and yes even beggar man and thief regardless of his talents penchant tendencies abilities vocations and race of his ancestors so there are two interesting things there for me and again this this is why i find behaviorism as a concept fascinating because there are parts of it where i go actually yes that's really good and then there are other parts where i go no what on earth are you thinking so what i like about what watson said there was the idea that you can become whatever you want that is something that we constantly tell our students you know you can do in life whatever you want parents in the audience you might have said that to your own children you know what do you want to be when you grow up i want to be an astronaut yes you can be an astronaut you can do whatever you want and so the behaviorist theory here actually supports that because a behaviorist would say that actually your natural abilities don't matter because you can learn to do what needs to be done on the other hand that does take away the importance of interest and the importance of passion uh so very clearly because i bang on about it every week uh and have done since i joined the show back in uh, back in july um my my big interest is language and how language is used what language is used for do i think that i could have trained uh, or have been trained to become a mathematician uh, maths was always my weakest subject at school uh the answer to that is yes i probably could have would i have still been a better linguist I think yes, because I'm more interested in language. I'm more interested in words than I am in numbers. And that interest makes me want to pursue things in my own time. It makes me want to broaden my knowledge. Whereas if I'm being instructed to do something under a behaviorist paradigm, then I'm not going to go that extra mile to learn things because I don't care necessarily. And I think that is something that the desire the free will is something that we don't talk about often enough as educationalists. You know, we don't give our children the credit of saying, actually, the reason they didn't learn what I wanted them to learn today is because they weren't interested in it. Or where we do say that, we are instantly criticised as the teachers because we should have made it interesting. And again, we're kind of constantly, it's almost like the behaviorism hasn't gone away in education because we are constantly taking away the free will of children. We are constantly stripping them of their autonomy and saying it's all the teacher's fault. Whereas sometimes the child just isn't interested and that's okay. It is still my job as the teacher to make it as interesting as possible. It is still my job as the teacher to make the material accessible to the child. but they might not be into it. And that is okay, because we can't all be interested in everything. So unless we are um, subscribing to a behaviorist paradigm and saying actually interest, 
ability, attainment don't matter, it's all about the training, we do have to think very carefully about the autonomy of the children and give some of that responsibility back to them. I say this at school all the time. It's We call it teaching and learning. Everything is about teaching and learning, but we take the learning part away and we put all of the responsibility on the teaching. And again, that's a behaviorist model. The idea that I as a teacher can do everything in order to make my learner learn. That's behaviorism right there. And as someone who doesn't subscribe to a behaviorist model, I'm going to turn around and say, actually, no. The child actually does have to do the bulk of the work. I can teach it, but I can't learn it for them. I already learned French for me. I learned Chinese for me. I learned Latin for me. I can't do it for you as well. We do have to meet in the middle. And I think sometimes that is in schools where we go wrong because we still have these underpinnings of behaviorism and this idea that as teachers, it is our responsibility to lead everything and that we can condition the children to do that, but they don't want us fully exploring the behaviorist model because they don't want us treating our children like lab animals, quite rightly. Thorndike, uh, the third of our theorists, 1874 to 1949, was also an American psychologist. Lots, behaviorism very much came out of the US. And this raises interesting questions about how transferable theories about teaching and learning are across international contexts. That's a whole show. That's a whole show uh, that maybe I will do one day. Um, but he performed a series of experiments which essentially required cats to escape from puzzle boxes. Um, he completely discounted the idea that the cats might be using any kind of insight, any kind of learning to escape from the puzzle box. Uh, and he believed fully that they were escaping through trial and error, through a conditioned response. And this is, as I mentioned at the, the top of this section about half an hour ago, this is the idea of the law of effect. Okay, so the idea here, and it, it's part of our reward behavior management system in school, the idea that a response that is closely affected, uh, that sorry, a response that is closely followed by a reward becomes associated with those positive feelings and so is more likely to be repeated. And we see that in behavior management policies all the time. We know that if you're going to reward a child for doing good work, it shouldn't be two weeks after that work was completed. It's why we try and stay on top of our marking um, as close to the lesson as possible so that children can have their rewards instantly. Part of it is that instant gratification that they need um, to, because they are so used to the, the flooding of dopamine from their social media, from their games. Uh, they don't want to wait for that reward anymore. But also under a behaviorist paradigm, they shouldn't wait for it because they need to associate the behavior indulged with the good feeling of getting the reward. It's why we reward our normally poorly behaved children for um, behaviors that they should be doing anyway. 
oh, Johnny, you sat really nicely and listened to my explanation today compared to yesterday when you just walked all the way through it. Here, I have a sticker. It's that be conditioning of behavior. That's the law of effect. In the same way, punishing bad behavior does the same thing. So negative consequences lead to a negative association. Which again is why if you're going to, why we are trained uh, that if we are going to give out a punishment, we do it immediately. Essentially, Thorndike was a connectionist. He believed that learning happens when there is a connection formed between stimulus and response. So again, to, to put that into my context in, in languages, if we keep the, the idea of conjugating verbs, a child has been through my steps, they've removed the ending from the infinitive, they've applied the appropriate ending for the, the person they're talking about, they get a sticker, they get a well done, they get a merit, they get house points, whatever it might be. They associate putting the endings onto the infinitives or onto the stem with that good feeling of being rewarded, so they do it again. And so they get rewarded, and so they do it again, and so they get rewarded. And eventually they're rewarded enough that that pattern of behavior is just repeated and they don't have to think. Thorndike did later on um, revise his law because he found that actually um, negative rewards, that is punishment, don't necessarily um, have the same impact. So punishing a child for doing something wrong doesn't have the same impact as rewarding them for doing something right. He also explored the idea that um, positive consequences don't necessarily motivate performance. So children are not necessarily motivated by the reward. And I think that's a really important thing that needs more exploration, is actually what does motivate our students? What does motivate our young people? Are the systems that we have in place in schools um, working. Tomorrow, um, I believe it's tomorrow, uh, on the station, we are exploring the idea that uh, children don't enjoy being in school. Uh, we've seen that the report has come out this week, I think it was something like 15% of children don't like being in school. Uh, and, and I've seen the responses on Twitter where that has been written off as, oh yeah, of course children don't like going to school. And my immediate reaction is, well, why not? Why are we not trying to make school an enjoyable place for them to be? Why are we not motivating them to learn? And actually, that there is a large portion of my doctoral research which is going to be focused on this, this idea of motivation. And what do we do to make, um, to, to increase that motivation? In addition to the law of effect, um, Thorndike came up with the law of exercise, and that tells us that the more the stimulus-response bond is practiced, the stronger it becomes. So it's the idea of practice makes perfect. But again, he did revise that idea when he found that 
practice without feedback does not enhance performance. So again, this begs a big question about our marking. Because in efforts to reduce teacher workload, there have been lots of discussions about, oh, you know, tick and flick doesn't work. So, you know, why are you even bothering? You know, just don't tick those activities. But if children need those ticks in order for those um, responses to be embedded, we're doing them a disservice by not ticking and flicking. So again, this is another place where schools are moving away from a behaviorist paradigm, moving away from a behaviorist model, but they are still kind of keeping elements of it. And perhaps this is why certain things don't work, because we're attempting to pick and choose things that we, that we like and create this model that isn't a cohesive, unified model. It's just things that we quite like doing. Finally, there was the law of readiness, and this states that the more um, the, the more a learner is ready to respond to their stimulus, the stronger the bond between stimulus and response will become. So that basically means if the child is not paying attention, then they're not going to learn as much because that uh, that bond between what they are doing and the reward that they're getting is not going to be as well connected. It's that idea of, oh, you're not concentrating, except not concentrating uh, implies thought, whereas uh, law of readiness is just you don't have a strong enough bond. Finally is the, I guess, the big man on campus when it comes to behaviorism, B.F. Skinner. Um, also an American psychologist, uh, he originally studied English and he was the founder of the concept of radical behaviorism. That is the idea that behavior is learned through reinforcement. So he, his theories have two main ideas. They are the operant conditioning and reinforcement. And Skinner tested these through his operant conditioning chamber, which is kind of informally known as the Skinner box. Lots of boxes I've noticed in behaviorism. Lots of putting animals in boxes, putting children in boxes, which we're not supposed to do. Um, Skinner's work has been widely criticized, widely criticized. Um, his biggest criticism, in my opinion, is the criticism of conformity. And it's the idea that the outcomes of Skinner's work are conformist. So the, the authority imposes a behavioral goal upon the experimentee. The teacher imposes a behavioral goal upon the child um, that is reproduced reliably and predictably. But that, first of all, requires somebody who is um, ethically sound to set the goal. It also limits innovation, it limits free thinking, it limits creativity. This can also lead to indoctrination because the teacher controls the outcome 
and the teacher uses reinforcement to reward the, in inverted commas, correct result, which is ultimately the result that the teacher wants. Now, of course, in a very mild, at its, um, at its most surface level, this is just a skill that we want them to acquire. So again, in languages, it's about being able to conjugate your verbs properly. However, in all subjects, the higher up you study, as you go through GCSE, as you go into A-level, as you go into university, the more you open yourselves up to concepts, the more open uh, a teacher talks about their own values, their own viewpoints to prompt discussion. And so the more a viewpoint can be forced on somebody, the more excuse me, the more indoctrinated somebody can become. It neglects cognitive processing, which is, as I've said all the way through this morning, the, the big issue that I have with it is it stops children from thinking. It actually doesn't require children to think at all. And I wonder then if children are not thinking in a purely behaviorist classroom, are they not getting bored? If everything is just mind switched off, automatic writing or speaking or whatever it is they might be practicing, how are they entertaining themselves? How are they keeping themselves amused? How are they not having their minds turned to mush by not having to think? Uh, and that's something I have yet to find a decent answer to. So if you're listening and you are a behaviorist and you you understand how to keep children engaged, um, how to make sure that they are um, not bored while doing the rote uh, behavior that you want them to indulge in, please do let me know because I'm, I'm interested. This is me legitimately being interested. Then, of course, is the external locus of agency of learning. So the, the learning is completely outside of the children. And again, this is what I was talking about just now in terms of teaching and learning having to be a partnership, in my opinion. Because under a behaviorist paradigm, learners are not encouraged to act independently. They do not make their own choices. It's all about the teacher. And I can see why lots of teachers like that, because particularly teachers who are... Um, who are judged on their exam results, who are judged on um, what higher-ups might consider to be performance, having that control and not leaving that to the kids means that you are um, more able to impress, I suppose, because you're able to get the outcomes that you want. But in my experience, that's not how it works. Because again, ultimately, the, the processing still has to happen. The deep thinking still has to happen. Because you put a child in an exam and they are expected to write an essay. Yes, maybe they can go through the processes, but if they're not thinking, they're not going to get those, um, those marks for the content that they need. They're not going to get the marks for the validity of their argument that they need. 
So again, I think there are lots of flaws here, and I think lots of the limitations and criticisms are valid. The operant conditioning theory, you know, I've talked about why I think Skinner's um, theories are wrong, but I haven't actually explained what they are. <laughs> um, the operant conditioning theory is based on the idea that learning is a result of a change in behavior. So again, learning here isn't a mental process. Learning is a behavioral process. Uh, operant conditioning suggests that changes in behavior then are a result of a response to a stimulus that occurs within the environment. And that, um, that response produces a consequence. So in, uh, in PE, for example, um, knowing how to kick the football properly so it goes into the goal, that is a consequence produced by a response. The kicking of the ball, had it go into the goal. The kicking of a ball with too much force, had it shoot past the goal. And so the, the, the stimulus then changes due to that response, and you kick a bit gently so it goes in. When a particular stimulus response pattern is reinforced through a reward, then the individual is conditioned to that response. Do it right once and you'll do it right again. Reinforcement is the key to this. Um, it, the, the idea is that the consequence strengthens the future behavior when that behavior is preceded by a stimulus that has already happened. They will expect the reward again. And, and we do see that in children. You know, they do something right, you give them a sticker, they do the same thing, and they will turn around and say, where's my sticker? Because they expect it. They, children do like that routine. They feel safe in that routine. Again, those of us who have trained and have worked with younger children, particularly in EYFS, you know that the routine is really important. They know what to expect. They feel safe. But ultimately, for operant conditioning, Practice should take the f a, a question and answer format so that students are exposed to their subject in um, ingredients. The learner needs a response for every question and every response gets feedback. Again, I'm interested for those from those of you who run a behaviorist classroom in how this works in practice when you've got, let's say, 35 children in your classroom. Um, you know, let's say a maths teacher asks a question, the children answer it on their whiteboards, because that's all the rage again at the moment, hold the whiteboards up, that teacher then, in order to give the feedback that they need, that the children need, will have to go around to each child individually and go, yes, that's right, yes, that's right, yes, that's right, no, think about this, and you do that 34 times, so that everybody gets their feedback. I'm interested in, on, on a practical level, how that works. Uh, difficulty of the questions should be arranged so that the response is always correct. So you are setting your child up to succeed. And I suppose the idea there is that the child is succeeding, therefore they're going to do it again because that success gets them a positive response. However, 
When I trained, I was told that if a child gets everything right, if a book is full of ticks, then I as the teacher have not done my job properly because I wasn't challenging that child. So again, this is where schools kind of have this mismatch between behaviorist and non-behaviorist approaches. And then you ensure that good performance is paired with secondary reinforcers. So that's the, the reward, such as a verbal praise, a prize, or a good grade. Now, again, in the US system, where teachers are pretty much in control of grades at a high school level, you know, where the, the child can pass the class, where you give the child the grade for the assignments, that's easier done than in the UK system, where we have externally set criteria by which we have to mark. If I can manipulate my grading criteria to make sure that my child always gets a good grade, then absolutely fine. If I'm using um, criteria set by Excel, AQA, OCR, whoever it may be, that's slightly more difficult. And I would need to make sure that I was setting my tasks to always allow the child to hit the top grade. And in languages and in humanities, where I teach, that's really difficult because of the broadness of the spectrum of criteria. So ultimately, Skinner's operant, operant conditioning tells us that positively reinforced behavior will reoccur. Intermittent reinforcement is especially effective. And that information should be given in small chunks so that responses can be reinforced. And again, that, that's something that I do in my teaching. As a, as a languages teacher, I am following the EPI model. I write the um, sentence builder Japanese textbooks. So I do believe that, that this is correct. And that reinforcement will generalize across similar stimuli that's called stimulus generalization, producing the secondary conditioning. So children will start to feel good about things, or they will be given a good grade, they will be given ticks, they will be given stickers, whatever it might be, because they can generalize what they have already done. And that's it. That is behaviorism in a nutshell. I find it... I think like all educational theories, there are positives and negatives to it. As I've explained, I do not like the idea that we are training our kids like animals. Um, I do not like the idea that we are taking away their thought processes, that we are taking away their autonomy. I do not know how I would do this without them getting bored. But at the same time, I do believe that rewarding is effective. I believe that rewarding is important. Do I think that rewarding is important because I want specific behaviours to be repeated? I don't know. Do I just want them mindlessly repeating behaviours or do I want them to engage, to think about what I'm teaching? Absolutely the latter. But then, if my concern is getting them through an exam, for example, does it matter if they are engaging? Does it matter if they are thinking 
so long as they are doing what they need to do to pass their exam. Again, from my point of view, yes, it matters. Because what's the point of learning something if you're not going to get as much out of it as you can? However, there are lots of teachers, there are lots of schools, which will say that the exam results are the only things that matter, and that as long as the child is repeating the behaviour, they're going to get that result, so that's all fine. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I didn't think that I would get to the end of today's show coming to a conclusion, um, because, of course, as we have already explored, uh, behaviorism comes from the uh, the 18th century. Behaviorism started there in the Age of Enlightenment as, as scientific approaches to research were becoming more and more prevalent. And so if there were an answer to this, somebody smarter than me would have come up with it in the last 300 years. So I wasn't expecting to find an answer. I, what I also wasn't expecting, though, was to find things that I liked. It's been a long time since I've studied behaviorism, I will be honest. I, I did it at university. Uh, we were told that it was an outdated model that we shouldn't be following, so I kind of forgot about it. Uh, so I wasn't expecting to find things in here that I actually do as part of my practice, such as giving rewards, uh, such as repetition. And it's quite interesting to think about how all of these theories do kind of um, link in with each other, how all of these theories do, do mesh. One day, maybe we will come up with a unified theory of education. Um, until then, I think we just carry on trying our very best and doing everything that we can to make sure that our children are engaged, that they are motivated, that they learn. This show has been brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. That is it from me for today. Thank you very much for tuning in. I do appreciate it as always. Thank you to those of you who have engaged today. It's been great. If you have any thoughts on behaviorism uh, in light of listening to the show, please do, um, do tweet us. I am at Mr. D. Lester. I would be really interested, really interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, I am our only show today. So I'm going to do as I always do and encourage you to go back through the back catalogue. Um, any shows from the week that you may have missed out on, uh, please do go and check those out. Or indeed, if you have enjoyed this morning, go back and see some of the other things that we have done for breakfast over the past few months. Uh, quite a packed day here on Teachers Talk Radio tomorrow. We've got the TTR Week in Review, which is a live video stream at 1pm. Um, uh, no, sorry, that's at 10am. Uh, at 1pm is Brent and Adam. Maud is on at 5pm and Christopher is on at 8pm. So a very, very packed day tomorrow. Up until then, um, I hope you have a great Saturday. I hope you have a fantastic weekend and I will be here with you for breakfast again next Saturday morning. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. 
Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.